Mark chapter 14, verses 17 to 26. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Communion, the Last Supper the Lord's Supper, the Mass, the Breaking of Bread, the Eucharist. We give it all sorts of names. Uh, Some churches do it every single time they meet. Some do it only once or twice a year. Some do it monthly. Some do it fortnightly. Some do it daily. Some do it every week. And if you've been coming to church for a while, of course you've seen communion done many times and you've most probably taken communion lots of times. But do any of us really understand it? I don't. And that might be the last thing you want to hear your preacher say this morning, that that he doesn't understand what communion is all about. But it's true. You see, what God actually does in communion, well, it actually remains a bit of a mystery to me. And sometimes I feel like I'm a bit of a fraud standing up here to teach you about communion when I know so little about it. And perhaps... It's the most significant part of communion, that bit which God actually does in communion. For for me, that remains a bit of a mystery. But I'm not too embarrassed about that because I'm in pretty good company there. Even one of the great Christian reformers, John Calvin, said, I rather feel it than understand it. And I suspect that's the way it is for most of us, isn't it? We feel it. And we know that God is doing something. God is doing something mysterious inside of us as we share together in communion. And here's the mystery. When we take communion, we're not just meeting with each other. We're meeting with Christ. Yes, um, we remember what Jesus did for us in the past as Jesus died on the cross. And yes, we're looking forward to the future when we meet with Jesus again. But when we share in communion, we're also meeting with Christ now. And it's not an individual thing. We together, as a church family, are communing with each other and we're communing with Christ. Now, that's, for me, is a mystery. And that's really deep. And we've discussed these issues before as we've studied other books of the Bible. Now, thankfully for me, we're not actually studying that part of communion today uh, because today 
we're concentrating on the Gospel of Mark, right? We've been doing our series on the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be seeing what the Gospel of Mark teaches us about communion. Now, when we began this series on Mark, which is actually over a year ago now, um, can you believe that? And some of you go, yes, we think you'll never end. Um, some of you go, no, it can't be a year. Well, yes, it is. It's a bit over a year. Um, and when we began that series, in the introduction, I said to you, well, look, the Gospel of Mark, it's actually the shortest of all of the Gospels, and it's the fastest moving of the Gospels. And so you might be feeling even more so, well, why are we still in it a year later if it's the shortest and fastest moving? Well, it, it is really fast moving at the start, and then it, as you get closer and closer to the crucifixion, it, it slows down. So we're actually now in the part of Mark where it really starts to slow down. But some of you, I mean, you won't be very surprised to know that, okay, if Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, then it's also one of the shortest accounts of the Last Supper that Jesus had. But something that the Gospel of Mark does, and this is what we're going to be focusing on today, is the Gospel of Mark... We'll wait for that plane to go over. Something that the Gospel of Mark does is it firmly connects the Last Supper with the Passover. Now, in the verses just before we began the reading today, they're what we covered last week, uh, last time we met, uh, the disciples have gone and they've set up for the Passover meal. And this meal um, that we've read about today, which we know as the Last Supper, is the Passover meal. And so for us to really understand communion, for us to really understand the Last Supper and what Jesus was doing there with his disciples, do you think that maybe we might need to know a little bit about the Jewish Passover? Yes, we do. And so that's what we're going to begin with today. You see, a lot of Christians just assume that Christianity is a standalone religion. It's not. We, some people sort of think, oh, Christianity, it all began Christmas morning when Jesus was born. It didn't. It's a continuation of God's story with his people. And a lot of Christians never even venture into their Old Testament. But if we want to understand what communion is all about, we're never going to understand it unless we do exactly that and venture into our Old Testaments. Because first of all, we need to understand what the Jewish Passover is about. Now, for these guys in the reading, it, all, it, it, it was all second nature for them. You see, Jesus was a Jew. The original 12 disciples were Jews. They were part of God's covenantal people. Now, some of you will understand what that term means. Some of you won't, but that's okay. We're going to talk about that more shortly. But through this act of the Last Supper, the Passover meal, Jesus demonstrated how his death on the cross was going to seal a new covenant between God and his people. And in the book of Hebrews, we're told that the old covenant is now obsolete because Jesus has brought in the new covenant. Now, to some of you, you might be going, oh man, this is getting really deep. That sounds all very highfalutin, but stick with me and hopefully we'll all get it by the end. But to get there... I'm going to take us for a trip back to Egypt. So we're going to go to Egypt about 1,500 years before the Last Supper. 
And we need to know a little bit about the exodus of the people of God from Egypt. So we're actually going to begin with how they got there, right? So if you remember back to your Sunday school days, you might remember a bloke by the name of Joseph. He was the chap with the coat of many colours. And he was the favourite son of Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, right? And so Jacob's sons, Jacob's sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob and their descendants. Anyway, Joseph was the oldest son of Jacob, the oldest son, sorry, was Jake, his favourite son. I got that mixed up. He was the favourite son. He was the oldest son of Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel. But Joseph's brothers hated him. Why did they hate him? Well, because he was the favourite. And um, he was the one who got the fancy coat of colours and he was the one who had all the dreams from God and, and, and they sort of thought that he was putting himself above them and they hated him. And so they sold Joseph into slavery and Joseph ended up in Egypt. But there in Egypt, the Lord blessed Joseph and he became very important in the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And then during the seven years of famine, his father and brothers also moved to Egypt. They first of all came, to, to some of the brothers came to buy a bit of, bit of tucker because of the famine, they had nothing to eat. But because of the dream that Joseph had interpreted, then Egypt had stored up all of this tucker and they, and they were selling it to people who came. Anyway, long story short, Joseph recognised his brothers and, and um, eventually was reconciled with them and got, his, got them to bring his other, the rest of the family over, his father and, and other brothers. And they all moved to Egypt where they could eat during the famine. But there they stayed. But once again, the Lord blessed them. And the people of Israel there in the land of Egypt grew in number. But over the years, the Pharaoh who so admired Joseph died. And the new Pharaoh began to grow afraid of this people of Israel because they'd grown mighty in number and they had many resources and they were strong. And so he began to grow afraid of them. And so the Egyptians enslaved them and set them to hard labour. Even so, they still continued to grow in number. And so Pharaoh decided that, all right, we'd better knock a few of them on the head. And he made a decree that any of the baby boys born to the Hebrew women were to be killed at birth. And most of you know, probably know very well the story of Moses, who was hidden in a basket, and he miraculously survived the genocide and infanticide of the Egyptians. Once again, long story short, Moses grew up in royalty. Uh, the Disney musical, The Prince of Egypt, presents him as this prince. Now, I don't know if he was really that much into royalty, but, but it was Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him. And that was all good until Moses had to flee for his life because he saw an Egyptian beating another Hebrew and he wasn't going to have that, and so he killed that Egyptian and he thought he'd got away with that got away with it but then he re when he realized that people knew that he'd done it he thought wow I'd better get out of here or else I'm going to be in strife and so he fled the country he ended up in another land 
um, Midian, where he married Zipporah. And he thought he had a new life there. But something happened. God was doing something. Back in Egypt, the people of God groaned under the yoke of slavery. And they cried out to God for him to deliver them. And God set about to exactly that. He appeared to Moses at the burning bush, right? So Moses saw this bush which appeared to be on fire, but it wasn't getting consumed. He thought, that's very strange. You'd think it was strange too, wouldn't you? And that's where Moses met with God. And God told him, I'm going to save my people from Egypt and I'm going to do it through you. Once again, long story short, see we're cutting down many, many chapters of the book of Exodus here. Moses goes to Pharaoh with a message from God. Let my people go. Now, Pharaoh wasn't going to let that happen. Like, that was free labour. Um, it's like working for your dad on the farm. Some of you know what that's like. That's free labour. Um, but Pharaoh wasn't going to let him go. And... Um, so he said, well, look, you obviously got nothing better to do. I'm obviously not working you hard enough. I'm going to increase the workload. And so he made things even worse for him. Now, some of you will know from experience just how horrible that can be um, when you're working for a boss that's never happy. Um, when your boss starts to put unrealistic and unattainable expectations on you, and when your boss starts to set impossible goals for you to achieve, it's really awful. But imagine how much worse it would be if you were a slave and your boss starts setting unachievable goals, and if you don't meet those goals, then you get beaten. Well, that's pretty much what happened. That's the burden that the people of Israel were under. Pharaoh said, right, well, you're making all these mud bricks for me. I've been providing you the resources. Right, now you have to go and get your own resources. You have to go and get the own bits and pieces to make these mud bricks, but I still want just as many made. And if you don't make them, you're going to be beaten. And so they were. Anyway... The message from God remained the same. Let my people go. And God sent plague after plague after plague to try and force Pharaoh to let his people go. First, first plague was he turned the water into blood. And then he sent a plague of frogs. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, a plague of frogs wouldn't be too bad. You know, I've had a frog in the toilet at home. You know, I'll tell you what, the most frightened I've ever been was by a frog. We, um, some of you can't see how that could possibly be. Well, when we first got married, we were living in this dingy old caravan and it was so old that basically any pest that wanted to get in could. And uh, we lived in it through a mouse plague and with the mice and... Anyway, one night I was sound asleep and this great big green frog landed right on my face. And I would just woke up instantly terrified. <laughs> I don't know where I threw it. I threw it pretty hard, I think. And um, yeah, anyway. By the way, that, that, so that was one of the flags, the plague of frogs. 
the plague of gnats, or maybe we might think they're like lice, plague of flies, then that livestock were diseased, and then there was boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Now, as each of these plagues, God sent each of these plagues, sometimes Pharaoh was unimpressed. Oh, my magicians can do something similar, and they do something similar. Other times, he would be so burdened by these, he'd go, all right, uh, right, I'll let you go, I'll let you go. And then as soon as the plague stopped, he'd renege and say, no, you can't go anymore. Finally, the harshest and the most bitter plague of all came. Now, we need to remember that Pharaoh had already been given every chance to avoid it. All the Egyptians had to do was let God's people go, but they refused to do it and they only treated them worse. And the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. Let me read from Exodus chapter 11 from verse 4. So Moses said, thus says Yahweh, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And that's what happened. At midnight, the Lord, Yahweh, went through Egypt. The destroyer, which sometimes gets translated as the angel of death, killed every firstborn in Egypt. But let's not try and take this away from God. Some people try and say, oh, God, just let this angel of death do it. No, as we read the account in Exodus, it's very clear that it's by the hand of God that this judgment took place. But the people of Israel were spared. Not one of the firstborn of the people of Israel died. How did they escape? Well, they escaped by what became known as the Passover. Once again, long story short, just before the sun went down, every family were told to go and slaughter a lamb or a young goat. And that was to be their meal for the night, roasted on a fire, along with unleavened bread. Now, the bread had to be unleavened because they didn't take time to rise. Now, I used to wonder about this because we can make our own bread at home and put in a bit of yeast and it rises in a couple of hours. And I know it takes longer to roast a lamb than it it does than a couple of hours. um, But the thing is, they didn't have little packets of yeast like what we have now. Their leaven was a little bit of old mouldy dough, which they would then mix in. And it would take a lot longer for it to rise than what our yeast does. And so they they didn't have time for that to happen, so they had unleavened bread. And it was to be eaten with bitter herbs. Uh, I was talking about this with someone last night. I see this as parsley, right? 
Um, parsley would have to be the most horrible herb known to man. Why does anyone put parsley in their cooking? I don't know. Some of you like it, don't you, Andrew? I, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. It's sort of like you know, getting lawn clippings and sprinkling it on your meal to, to decorate it, only it tastes worse. Anyway, but some of you like it, so let's not be too disparaging. But I think that some people, when they are celebrating the Passover, actually use parsley as the bitter herbs. And, um, and I'm quite good with that because I think they're bitter herbs. And it was to remind them of the misery that they had in Egypt, right? So every time you eat parsley, remind them, remember the misery of the people of Israel. I do. Right. And they were to take some of the blood of the lamb, and this is the important part. They took some of the blood of the lamb that they had slaughtered and they would paint the doorposts beside the door and the lintel above the door. And let's read from Exodus chapter 12, reading from verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Right? That's the ancient version of the drive-through, right? So you're there, you're on your way somewhere. You're about to go on a big trek. That's why you're there with your staff in the hand, all ready to go. And you shall eat it in haste. Now, every time I read this and talks about eating in haste, I think of a shearer. Now, I don't know if it's the same here, but, but at home, I, I was always astounded at how fast a shearer can eat. I mean, like, they could finish a run and they could unload their handpiece, get the combs and cutters soaking in the water, have a wash, get in the car, drive home which is a bit, to my place, which is about two k's away, and eat a rather large meal, get back in the car again, drive back to the shearing shed, clean the combs and cutters and be laying down flat on their back in the shed, all in about 10 or 15 minutes. Now, I don't know how it was even physically possible, but they seem to be able to achieve it. But eating in haste, gobble it down. You hear parents tell you, don't gobble your meal. Well, that's what God was saying. Do gobble your meal. Gobble it all up. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that is how the people of Israel were saved. The blood of the lamb was painted on the doorposts and the lintel of the doorway. And when the Lord came that night, he saw the blood and he passed over that house. There, no death was going to come to any dwelling that had the blood of the lamb on it. Now, when we start using that terminology, you might be starting to get it. No death would come to any dwelling 
that had the blood of the lamb on it. And the Lord then took his people out of Egypt. Though once again, Pharaoh in true form reneged like what he had before and he took chase. And God parted the waters of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds and the people of Israel passed through. Pharaoh's army tried to follow them, but the waters closed over them and Pharaoh's army were destroyed. Uh, by the way, uh, a professor once was doing his best to discount the miracles of the Bible. And he said, take, for instance, the crossing of the Red Sea. We know that it wasn't the Red Sea, but it was a different body of water altogether and it was only six inches deep. And so it wasn't a miracle at all. And from the back of the room came a cry, praise God, it's a miracle. He said, I, what are you doing? I just explained it wasn't a miracle. And he says, praise God, it's a miracle. God drowned the entirety of the Egyptian army in only six inches of water. So whichever way you look at it, it was a miracle what God did by helping them to escape. And it was really important that the people of Israel would never forget the way that God had re rescued them from their bitter captivity and the slavery that they were in. And so God made a command to Israel that every year they should observe the Passover. And it became a festival, a festival of commemoration. It was a ritual, it was a feast, it was a yearly event where they would remember how God passed over them. And the focus of the Passover was on the salvation or redemption, the way that God had saved them out of Egypt. The focus was on the blood of the lamb that they had been saved from death. And it was about freedom. They set free from slavery. And it was a time for remembering with thankfulness and giving praise to God. It was by the blood of the Lamb that they were able to be saved out of Egypt. But that didn't stop there. Once they'd been set free, God made a covenant with them. At Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the Ten Commandments and various other laws. And if they were going to be God's people, then they should live by God's righteous law. And then by splashing them with blood from a sacrificed bull, Moses confirmed the covenant between the people of Israel and God. Now, remember before, I said that the people of Israel were God's covenantal people. They were in covenant with God. Now, some of you w might know very well what that means. Some people talk a lot about covenants and some of us might not know what a covenant is at all. What is a covenant? Um, for our Afrikaans speakers here, now you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation. Verbond? V-E-R-B-O-N-D? Verbond? Is that right? Is that how it's said? Verbond. Verbond. It's nothing like what you're saying, is it? To me, it sounds exactly the same. And by the look on your face, I say, don't know it at all. But interesting, though, when I was looking that up in the Afrikaans version that I have, I realised that in the Old Testament, it's verbond, 
or nothing like that, <laughs> B-E-R-B-O-N-D. In the New Testament, it's actually called testament. Um, so is that a South African, an Afrikaans word as well, testament? It is? And is that how you say it, testament? Testament, yep. Well, and, and that makes more sense to me because, like, here we have a last will and testament. A testament is, is something which is set for all time. It, you, you can't just discount it. Now, um, if, if I had time, I would have asked Ting if she knows the Chinese version of covenant, but I won't ask, I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> um, but a covenant is like a contract which shouldn't be broken an unbreakable contract. God had chosen Israel to be his people. So God made this contract with Israel that they would be his people and they would live by God's law. They would live as God's people should live because it didn't take long until Israel broke that covenant. But that didn't stop them from being God's covenantal people. They were part of this covenant with God. They were just dishonouring it. Anyway, let's come back to the Passover. It was a celebration of them being set free. It was a celebration of the Passover and the Exodus. And the, the whole Exodus experience included this giving of the law. And so the Passover was a celebration of the covenantal relationship that they had with God. It was a celebration that God had rescued them and God had done something that they didn't deserve. He made them his people in this covenant. So let's step forward now to the New Testament. What are some of the things that happened at a Passover celebration? Well, there's several steps to it along the way. Um, and at each step, they would explain what, what it meant. First of all, they would begin with a cup of wine. And they would pray and give an explanation of the sanctity of the occasion. Then the next step, was they would dip a vegetable into salt water. And the salt water was to remind them of the crossing of the Red Sea. And it was to remind them of the tears of misery that they had as slaves. Then there was the unleavened bread. Um, and that was so that they could remember the haste in which they had to leave Egypt. The urgency of getting away, of getting out of there. Fourthly, came a pungent vegetable of some kind, a bitter herb, something like parsley, a symbol of the bitterness of slavery. Then comes the best bit, the main course, a bit of roast mutton, a lamb which had been ritually sacrificed in the afternoon and its blood had been thrown against the altar of the temple. And then after this, after supper, and I'm highlighting that because it's important, after supper, they had the second cup of wine. And that's when they told the story of the Exodus, and that's when they explained each of the elements of the meal. And at this point, and this is important, they would pray for the future redemption of Israel. Then they'd have the third cup, 
which is followed by grace after the meal. We usually do grace before the meal. And then they would have the fourth cup when they would sing or recite various psalms of praise to God. Right? So that's the normal process of a Passover meal back in New Testament times. But during the Last Supper, Jesus did some very unexpected things. And for us, they're quite significant things. So in verse 22, it says, and, and, they were, and as they were eating bread, he took bread, and being the Passover, it would have been unleavened bread. And some translations of our Bible, including the, the English Standard Version, which we had there this morning, said that he blessed the bread. Um, perhaps a better um, translation might be he gave thanks for the bread. Um, because it's not actually the bread that we're blessing, we're blessing God. Um, so, and the, all the commentaries I read all were really clear in this, that we shouldn't see this as some kind of magical blessing or consecration of the bread. And Jesus took the bread and he broke it. Now, that's, that's an entirely normal thing for a host or a leader at, at a Passover meal to do. But instead of taking that bread and saying, well, we're doing this now to remember that they had to get out of Egypt quickly, Jesus said something different. Jesus said, take, this is my body. What a strange thing to say. Now, for us, in hindsight, we have no trouble at all understanding it. I mean, follow, and following the crucifixion, I suspect the disciples would have gotten it too. Jesus' body was broken. When Jesus was whipped, his body was being broken and scourged. When they pressed that crown of thorns down into his head, his body was being broken. As they beat him and spat on him, his body was being broken. And then they took spikes and they drove it through his hands and his feet. And then they hoisted him up to hang on those spikes. The full weight of his body hanging on spikes driven through his flesh. His body was being broken. And finally, they pierced his side and blood and water flowed. Jesus' body was well and truly broken. But I want you to remember the significance of the Passover. The celebration of the Passover is the celebration of the redemption and the salvation of God. Now, if anybody other than Jesus had done what Jesus did, what did he do? He was basically inserting himself into the commemoration of the redemption of God. He said, this is my body. Now, if, if anybody else did that, that would be blasphemy. You couldn't do that. You couldn't be talking about the celebration of the Passover and the redemption of God and take the bread and say, this is my body. You can't. It'd be blasphemy. But Jesus did. You see, Jesus wasn't hijacking the Passover meal. He wasn't 
taking it upon himself to insert himself into the Passover. The Passover was always about Jesus. The Passover was looking forward to an even greater redemptive work that God was going to do. The whole exodus from Egypt was just a little, a little taste of the full work of salvation that God was going to do through his son. And the symbolism here is rich. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is recognised as the Lamb of God. In 1 Peter and in the book of Revelation, it speaks about the blood of the Lamb and how it's Jesus' blood that saves us. The Passover itself was looking forward to the coming of Jesus, which is why Jesus could say, this is my body. Jesus' body being broken is the ultimate redemptive work of God. And the Passover was looking forward to it. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, by the way, uh, the Greek word there for thanks is eucharisto. When I was a, a young lad, the minister, a minister came to our local church and he used to like big words and he used them often and we were always bamboozled why he would use such big words. But he used to always call communion the Eucharist. Has anyone ever heard communion being called the Eucharist? It's, it's, it often is, in, in usually in higher church type settings. Um, but that's simply where that word comes from. It just means thanksgiving. Now, Mark doesn't specifically tell us this, um, but at this point in the Passover, it's after the supper, right? So we've already had the breaking of the bread and the bread and the lamb came at, at pretty much the same time. And so this is after the supper when he takes this cup. And in fact, Luke tells us that it was after the meal. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us it's after the supper. Now, why am I drawing this out? Why is it significant that they take this cup after supper? Well, it's because that means it's the second cup of wine. And in the Passover, when they take the second cup of wine, that's when the story of the Exodus is explained and that's when each of the elements of the meal is explained. And at this point, as they take that second cup of wine, is when they pray for the future redemption of Israel. Right? So at this point, they're looking forward to this future redemption of Israel. And as they drink this cup, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now, by the Passover terms, it's the blood of the lamb, you see. By the blood of the lamb, we are saved 
they were saved at Passover. But now in Christ, it's by the blood of another lamb. It's by the blood of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, that the future redemption of Israel would come. This is my blood of the covenant, he said. One of the other Gospels, it tells us, it actually puts the word new in there. It's the new covenant. You know, the prophet Jeremiah had told them that there would be a new covenant. The old covenant failed. Israel had broken the covenant. They didn't keep God's law. But the prophet Jeremiah told them that there was going to come a time when God would bring a new covenant to them, where God would make a new covenant with them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, reading from verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, No Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. Remember before I said that the covenant that God made with Israel was an unbreakable contract. But Israel broke it. God gave them his law, the Ten Commandments. And they broke it. They couldn't keep it. How are you going with that, by the way? Can you keep the Ten Commandments? Now, if any of you say yes, I'll go, ah, you just broke another one. You've just given false testimony. Because none of us can. None of us can keep the Ten Commandments. But Israel had heard the promise of Jeremiah. And they were looking forward to a new covenant. They were looking forward to a time when they could truly know God. How can we truly know God? You know, some of us picture God as being this holy God. Well, he is. But we think that he's so distant from us. And we could never, ever truly know God. But you know what? We can. Because under the new covenant, God actually comes into our heart. And by his Holy Spirit, he lives inside of us. And we begin to know what truly pleases God. Our consciences are, are made stronger, if you like. So, you know, when you become a Christian, some of the things that you used to do didn't have any problem at all doing them. But when you become a Christian, you realise, oh, I actually don't feel right doing that anymore. I don't think God's happy with me doing that anymore. Do you know, what, you know what's causing that? That's God, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He has written his law on your heart. 
So you know when you're doing wrong. You know when you've treated somebody badly. You don't need somebody to, to say to you, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, because you know. And this is the covenant that was made possible by the blood of Jesus. When he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You know, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah talked about God's suffering servant who would come. He says in Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah was spelling out exactly what was going to happen when Jesus was crucified. Jesus was pouring himself out. His blood was atoning for our sins. Jesus would become the sacrificial lamb of God. The, the, now, can you imagine just what this actually means? Like, here Jesus is. He, he's the perfect, righteous, holy one. And he takes on himself my sin and he takes on himself your sin everything filthy and dirty in my life every awful abominable thing he takes on himself the sin of the world this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I wonder what that word new means. Is it merely talking about new wine? Or is Jesus referring to his new, glorified, resurrected body. I don't know. But one thing's for sure, the crucifixion wasn't going to be the end. And of course, we praise God for his resurrection. What, what use would there be in any of us coming here today to worship God if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? It would just mean he's just another ordinary old man. Somebody who died before their time. But he was raised from the dead. Now, I talked about big words that preachers like to use sometimes. I'll give you another one. Eschatological. That's a big one, isn't it? 
It just, it just means referring to end times, right? It's, it's referring to the time when Jesus will return. And there at the Last Supper, the First Communion, Jesus very clearly points us forwards to a time of great celebration when we will dine with Jesus Christ himself. You know, when I started out this morning, I said that the bread and the wine, they, they really remind us of the presence of Christ and we're actually meeting with Christ. And yet, when we look around here today, you might be all a bit sceptical at that and go, well, he's not here. You see, Jesus at this point is noticeably absent. But that's not the way it's always going to be. Disciples of Jesus, people who have chosen to follow Jesus and give their heart to him, we're not just looking forward to some kind of pie in the sky when you die. We seriously, seriously look forward to what we know as a certainty. We will be in the very real and actual presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Who's looking forward to that? Is anybody looking forward to that? One of you is. Oh, three of you are. Four. Let's try again. Who is looking forward to being in the, in the actual presence of Jesus on that day when he returns? Put your hand up high if you are. Excellent. That's much better. For a while, I thought I was going to have to put, change my glasses again. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They just finished off the Passover in the normal manner by singing praise to God. Now, how do we respond to this? If this is what communion is all about, Jesus giving his beautiful life to make us people who are, I don't want to offend any of you, but you're pitiful wretches. I know you are because I am. But if Jesus gave his beautiful life to save a pitiful wretch like me and you, well, how do we respond to this? How can we pay him back for something like that? Well, we can't. You can never pay Jesus back. You are forever in his debt because he has given a free gift to you, a free gift to me. We can't ever buy holiness. We can't ever buy salvation. So how do we respond? Thankfulness, praise, worship. Worship is a strange word. Who other than a Christian uses the word worship? Oh, maybe there might be a few worshippers tonight, the footy grand finals on, I think. Is that right? I think some people worship their footy teams. But they have no reason to. You know, some people don't like singing in church 
Um, there may be even one or two over here, I'm not sure. Uh, but I once heard a minister say, oh, we should get away from singing in churches. Where else? Do, it's just all old hat. Where else in the community do people get together and sing? Why do we continually do it and make people feel awkward when they're new and come into church? We should just get relevant and ditch singing altogether. Now, I don't know about you, but without songs of praise, I reckon I would very quickly run out of words to thank God. And I'd very quickly run out of ways of giving my thanks and my praise to God. And if you know Jesus, if you have given your heart to Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and received forgiveness and eternal life through the blood of the Lamb, you know exactly what I mean. If you have experienced the salvation of God, your heart will be filled with thankfulness. And the only, the only outlet for it is endless praise. That's what Jesus deserves. We worship him with our whole being. Now, sometimes when we take communion, we can get all self-centered about it. Oh, I wonder what God's going to do for me in communion. Let's stop asking that. He's already done everything he needs to. Let's concentrate on us worshipping him as we take communion together. Christ is our Passover. By his blood, we're saved from death. And by his blood... All who surrender their lives to Jesus find forgiveness of sin and relationship with God and life everlasting. Let's pray. Oh Lord, uh, for some of us, when we take communion, it's, it's just become a religious act we do and we just do it because we know what we're supposed to and and we've lost all wonder. We've just turned it into a religious rule that we have to do. Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, today we want to, for some of us it might be the first time, for some of us it might be a redoing of it, Lord, but we want to give you our hearts. Lord, we thank you that Jesus became the Passover lamb for us. Lord, we know that we were destined for death. That's all we deserved. We, we didn't deserve to be made right with you. But in your grace and your mercy, you sent your only begotten son to die for us. That the blood of the lamb would make us right with you. And Lord, we are so sorry for the wrong that we've done. We're so sorry for our wrong attitude toward you 
We've just set you as last or near last in our lives. God, forgive us. We've looked to satisfy our own will instead of yours. God, forgive us. And Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. As Jesus surrendered himself to you to go to the cross, Lord, we hand our lives over to you. Lord, we've mucked them up. Lord, we, we ask that you would take us and lead us on whatever path you have set for us in the future. And Lord, as we share in communion today, Lord, help us to truly remember the cost that it was for Jesus to become our Passover lamb. But Lord, we also look forward with expectation and with joy to the day that Jesus returns. Lord, we want to be with you that day. And we thank you that it's all made possible. through Jesus' body being broken for us. Lord, we ask that you would do your work in us today, in Jesus' name. Amen.